0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The last 10 years have written a new chapter in the annals of political corruption in Pennsylvania. There are several examples, but nothing says it better than two former speakers of the House sharing a cell at the same time while in prison together. Pittsburgh Tribune Review columnist Brad Bumstead chronicled the scandals in his book Keystone Corruption. But then along came Kathleen Kane as the state's attorney general. Her tenure ended this week after she was convicted of charges related to leaking secret grand jury information to a newspaper and then lying about it under oath. Unfortunately for Pennsylvanians, Brad Bumstead had enough material to write a second book. Keystone Corruption Continues, Cash Payoffs, Porngate, and the Kathleen Kane Scandal. Brad Bumstead, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me back. I say, unfortunately for Pennsylvanians, but uh, you have material. Is that a good or a bad thing that you have enough material for a second book?
1: Well, it's both. I mean, for me personally, it's right. good for for the state and the taxpayers. It's bad. that, that it, We've seen an avalanche of corruption over the past almost 10 years. And, and uh, just since 2013, when Keystone Corruption was published, there have been so many more cases that it's almost mind-numbing. It really is. I said
0: to you before it went on the air that... I really don't even know where to start because there has been so much in just the last three years the last 13 years uh, and you chronicle all of it in in both your books but let's uh, let's focus on this book one recurring theme throughout this book is Kathleen Kane would you
1: agree with that absolutely Uh, even the first segment of the book which deals with the Uh, prosecution of of, uh, corruption at the Turnpike Commission was a case that she filed in 2013 and at the time it looked like a a pretty courageous move by her because she's a Democrat and these were Democrats from the Rendell administration who had jobs at the Turnpike Commission and I found that pretty interesting that she was going to go after this right away. Now, the case was a holdover from Linda Kelly, uh, the previous attorney general who'd been appointed by Tom Corbett, and Corbett's investigators had put this together, but she signed off on the indictments. But in the end, the case really uh, fell apart, did not accomplish that much, people believe, because uh, uh, at least uh, uh, you know, half of the people, three quarters of them, pled d- down to charges that were so light compared to what they were charged with uh, that uh, no one went to prison in the whole thing.
0: Let's talk about that, because in a, in a lot of ways, this is a history book. Uh, you know, 20, 50 years from now, when people read your book, uh, hopefully we will not have the kind of corruption then that we do now, but th- this documents what has happened in, in, in Pennsylvania. For those who mm-hmm. didn't follow the case, or may not be familiar with it after everything that's happened over the last few years, provide some background on the Turnpike case. And, and let me just say, and one of the things you point out, is that the Pennsylvania Turnpike had a reputation as a place where you needed a job, that's where you, and you knew someone, that's where you you, you went.
1: So start with that. Yes, the Turnpike Commission was famous for two things uh, among Pennsylvanians. One was a place to get a job if you knew somebody. You could get a, a son or a cousin placed there for a summer job. Um, uh, professional jobs over the past five to ten years have been uh, uh, in a different category, not under the patronage, but for years, it was the turnpike toll toll taker who got these jobs Now, with easy pass, those jobs are few and far between, but somehow their payroll. Uh, has not come down that much, the the number of people they hire. So I'm not sure where all these people are. Turnpike Commission is famous for a second thing, and that is, generally speaking, keeping the roads clean uh, uh, in, in snowstorms. We had a bad incident out in the western part of the state um, th- th- this past winter. But for the most part, you can be sure that if you need to get somewhere, you're going to have clean highway, even if it's snowed. Uh, a tremendous amount. Yeah, turnpike but, maintenance did a great job. They did, uh, but you pay a, a heck of a premium to to ride on that road. If you look uh, under the agreement that was reached in two thousand seven uh, for the turnpike to turn money over to PennDOT each year, the the uh, tolls have gone up as part of that agreement automatically each year. I don't know, it's something like two or three percent, but. They keep going up and, and they're less for easy pass, but uh, you pay a heck of a price so that they have you know, approximately 2,000 employees for roughly 500 miles of road. Um, that's, that's why you pay that, and, and, uh, but in any case, that's, that's the history of it. There have been other scandals over the years, over the Turnpike Commission, but uh, nothing approaching the magnitude of this case, at least it appeared when it was filed. It looked like, and what it was claimed to be by Kathleen Kane, a pay-to-play case. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Pay-to-play, of course, is if you want a contract, you big you give a big contribution to certain elected officials. Now, th- th- those officials aren't necessarily, it weren't, on the Turnpike Commission. They were legislators who had influence at the Turnpike Commission, and the allegation was that uh, contractors and other people who worked at the commission uh, were out raising money, you know, fundraising uh, uh, for certain politicians who had influence, including foreign, former Senate Democratic leader Bob Mello. Um, uh, former Senator Vincent Fumo wasn't named in the indictment, but he was clearly someone uh, who was uh, collecting uh, um, largesse from, from this, and he had enormous influence there as well. So all of this took place, and, and the prosecutors were trying to prove that those contributions um, uh, got these people the contracts. But in the end, if this had gone to a jury, a jury would have had to uh, uh, you know, dot the lines and cross the T's to be able to make that conclusion because it never got that to that point that they were showing a quid pro quo for the contracts. Now, maybe that's just because it's understood. You give money, you get a contract. You don't even have to talk about it. You don't get money. As some of the contractors testified, you don't get a contract or as big a one. So that was the underlying allegation of all of it.
0: But... It never got to a jury, as you no. said. And uh, I mean, you point out and you describe some of the the allegations there. What are some of the ones that really stuck out to you? You know, when you heard about them or when the allegations were made, it was like, okay, this this seems pretty serious. But then it never made it to a jury.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that that they had uh, consultants working at the Turnpike Commission from a company called Cyber, uh, based in Colorado. And the amounts of money that were paid to Cyber were mind-boggling, especially in terms of, of uh, um, renewed contracts as it went forward. And this was all for you know uh, uh, computer work, IT work within the office, which is a big deal at, a, at a, um, an agency that size. So uh, uh, what was just struck me is, look, there's really must be something to this. Is um, Several name companies, uh, without going into who they were, but everybody's heard of them, um, uh, were lower bidders on this than cyber. Yet cyber got the contract, and you wonder, how did that happen? Um, So uh, the new administration came in at the turnpike um, uh, with, um, I guess that would have been in 2014, and uh, immediately uh, filed a lawsuit. To, to try to reclaim some of this money from cyber. The last time I checked, that's pending. You know, they're trying to reclaim that, uh, claw back uh, some of this money. But that one was uh, the influence that some of these consultants and workers from cyber had at the turnpike were considerable. They were showering a guy who was involved in awarding money and contracts with with gifts with with, uh, trips, with uh, sporting events, um, rides in limousines, that sort of thing.
0: Mm -hmm. So ultimately, there were a handful of people, but some pretty uh, high-profile people in the Turnpike Commission who were charged. Uh, Who were they, and how did it come to be that it never went to trial?
1: Well, you know, generally speaking, in, in most courthouses across the state, prosecutors don't necessarily want to go to trial. If they can get a plea on a charge, that's a safe thing. Uh, You you know, anything can happen at trial. We saw Cain convicted this past week of of nine counts, but you never know. You know, one juror can hold that up or a small group of jurors can can prevent that. Uh, Even if they heard overwhelming evidence, they can nullify uh, uh, the evidence. But uh, so one person who is, uh, stands out was Joe Brimmeyer. He was the CEO uh, of the Turnpike Commission, and he was charged with various, uh, you know, uh, counts of, you know, influence peddling and all of that. But and you know, he wasn't, and and fundraising, he was doing some of the political stuff. He always maintained there was no pay to play there. Um, uh, a witness for um, the the Commonwealth at one point even described an incident where. Brehmeyer had uh, picked her up in the car and was furious that there had been a call about that. And he just said, we don't do pay to play here. Uh, His attorney was convinced of his innocence the whole way through. What happened in the end, uh, like a lot of these people, he made a deal uh, to uh, accept a plea for conflict of interest, which um, uh, does not uh, require automatic loss of your pension. And I talked to Joe afterwards, Uh, Joe always a hell of a nice guy. And he said, look, I just did this for my family. I did this to keep my pension. Uh, I don't believe I was uh, guilty of anything, uh, but this was the, the the way out for me, and, and I had to take it rather than risk losing the pension and maybe even going to jail. That's great, but as people at the Allegheny County Courthouse uh, told me later you know if the the judge had uh read that or heard about it say well then well, what about your plea you mean you didn't do it you 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 admitted in court you did this you saying you didn't did you lie to the court so it was very it's a very tricky situation to come back and say oh i just did that to to uh um negate the um uh charges against me and to keep my pension, but clearly that was his motivation, and a lot of these people, you know, pled to that so they could keep their pensions. People see that as a hole in the law. Yeah, you, you mentioned that throughout the book that many of these cases, uh,
0: that pensions were one of their main motivations to keep either their pensions and that there
1: is a hole in the law. Talk about that. Well, yes. Uh, the the. the um, Pension Forfeiture Act has enumerated crimes for public officials that, if you're convicted of those crimes, you automatically lose your pension. Curiously, murder isn't one of them. Um, wow! You know, so you you kill somebody, uh, you, you're you keep not, your pension. Huh? Yeah, you do. Yeah. You do. Great. Not encouraging. No, I understand to, that yeah. <laughs> to happen. <laughs> but but uh, that, that surprised me. But the reason is. They wanted the Pension Forfeiture Act when it was drafted to apply to crimes in office that affect the the operation of that office. Like Kathleen Keynes, clearly, uh, she wouldn't get much of a pension after th- three and a half years. But if, if any, but um, her, her crimes involved, you know, her office, people who worked in her office, you know, what she did was in her office. So uh, perjury, for instance, is a crime that you know is considered an abuse of office. So all of that uh, uh, hangs out there, and it's it's um, uh, a problem for prosecutors, they say, if you take away this uh, conflict of interest charge because it's a way that they can get pleas, and it's a way that they can get um, – People to admit to wrongdoing, even when the, the the cost of going forward would have been horrendous, and they, you know, maybe were risking something at trial.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to talk more about Kathleen Kane's role or lack of it in the Turnpike case, but I also want to talk about that conflict uh, with another case in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is Brad Bumstead author of the book Keystone Corruption Continues: Cash Payoffs, PornGate, and the cash Kane scandal. If you have a question or a comment 1-800-729-7532, send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Brad, I want to continue with the conflict uh, issue and pensions. Uh, one of uh, the chapters in your book, and I'm not going to read it verbatim because I can't, but uh, I am the expletive senator. This was Senator Leanna Washington. Uh, talk about her case and you know, how it kind of relates to what we were talking about with conflicts and pensions.
1: Right. And that expression you use that she stated is what she'll be known for at the Capitol because right. it was so infamous, let's right. say. Right. But Leanna Washington was a state senator, a Democrat from Philadelphia, and she uh, had an annual fundraiser on her birthday. And that's where she raised most of the money for her campaign. And she made her state employees do it. They had a organize this fundraiser, take care of all the details. It was a big thing in her office. At one point, her uh, chief of staff objected and said, look, this is something we shouldn't be doing. And she basically told him, uh, don't tell me what to do. I am the expletive uh, s- senator. So uh, this, she was charged by Kathleen Kane uh, uh, shortly uh, around the time when the, the so-called Sting case was breaking. We'll tell you about that right. later. Right. But uh, she was charged with um, you know, theft of services like some others. But as the, eventually, they took a plea from Leanna Washington to conflict of interest, and she kept her pension. And you know prosecutors say we have to have this. If, if, if you take away conflict of interest, they'll just have to plea, plea bargain down to something else. I mean, it's part of the system, whether we like it or not, in every courthouse, you know, Murderers sometimes, you know, plead out to, you know, uh, manslaughter or whatever. And- it, it, you know,
0: in the long run, a lot of times it saves taxpayers money rather than going through what, as you described, could be an unpredictable trial of whether uh, you, you get a, a, a guilty uh, a verdict or or not. All right, so let's turn back to the Turnpike Commission Turnpike case for just a moment. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the Attorney General signed off on this on this investigation. Uh, but around this time that this is happening, she the attorney general started having her own issues. Um, there was one prosecutor who was working on the case, Laurel Br- Bradstetter. Uh, you talk about her in the book. She felt that she got no support, and she didn't. And, I mean, we could see it, right? That... But you also write that you felt that the attorney general was distracted from the Turnpike case, and that's why it, one of the reasons that no trials ever occurred or there weren't more uh, substantial penalties.
1: One of the reasons, and and uh, I do attribute there to my colleague uh, Steve Essek of The Morning Call, who at one point when we were doing a TV show said uh, they, they, starved, they starved her investigation. And that's really what it was. Starved for lack of resources. The question is why? I don't know the answer to why. I really don't. Was it because there really were prominent Democrats uh, being... You know who were involved in this case that had influence with Kane, uh, Did she tank the case. I don't know. I can't say that. But all I know is Laurel didn't get the support. We saw that. You know, literally saw that when she would walk into court, and she'd be up against a, a whole slew of attorneys from Philadelphia representing some of the Turnpike Commission people, and and she had uh, only on one occasion, maybe two, so some you know part time assistants, young people uh, in one case. So we don't know if it was that what what happened there uh and it's it's bothersome but it could simply be that she was distracted as you put it by everything else that had come up and just was not paying any attention to it whatsoever mm-hmm. uh,
0: the attorney general was hailed as a rising star politically her first year in office i mean there were people that were saying that uh, you know she had star power that she was going to be uh you know possibly running for governor, running for the U.S. Senate here. President at, Chris run, Matthews. I, I, yeah, I remember that. I thought that was a little overboard. but A still, bit. Uh, but, uh, you know, Chris Matthews has a tendency to do that sometimes. But anyway, then comes March 2014, and the Philadelphia Inquirer did a story on a, a Sting case that uh, was, was dropped. Talk about the Sting case and... You know, this is like when the problems all began.
1: It is. It's the root of everything here uh, for Kathleen Kane's problems. The The Sting case was an undercover operation uh, run by former um, uh, Chief Deputy Attorney General Frank Fina. And it was uh, a, a, an undercover Sting operation where they had a, a, a very persuasive case. Uh, guy from philadelphia who ran a daycare center and been charged with a whole bunch of crimes they were able to reach a deal with him and get uh, Ty- tyron ali working for them and uh in so doing he 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 wore a recording device and uh, had a camera and he started talking to uh, at their direction um uh, legislators from Philadelphia and was offering cash in return for uh their assistance. He was posing as a lobbyist and, you know, he offered certain bills and, and talked about certain committees or he needed, you know, to help arrange jobs at a certain place. And there were legislators who were very willing to take this cash and literally stuff it in their pockets. And this is all recorded. The Philadelphia Inquirer March sixteenth, twenty fourteen uh, writes about this sting case and how Kathleen Kane dropped it; she failed to prosecute it, and that was a, a, a story like none I've seen in, in maybe ever. Where it was a, according to anonymous sources, they named who the people were who took. They the had cash. them on tape. They on the videotape, right? Well, they did, but, you know, presumably we don't know that they had the tape. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, they had them on tape, but did the Inquirer have the tape? We don't know that. It looked to me like they certainly looked at it, but they were certain, and they had, according to sources, each person and how much money um, they they were at that time alleged to have taken. Um, Of course, this this turned Kathleen Kane's world upside down, literally upside down. Um, That day the story broke you know I'm one reporter here in Harrisburg for a Pittsburgh newspaper what do I do with this story how I do, h how do I deal with it so the only thing I can think of is I have to talk to Kane um, and get her side talk to her about it so I call Adrienne King her then chief of staff I get in to see her that night as did one other guy Mark Scalforo from the AP and we get these interviews with her it was very interesting now in retrospect you know how calm she was about all this given how we later hear how much you know turmoil there is there in the office over it. And then she launches a, a, a an effort against all of this, where the very next day she call, calls a press conference. and at this press conference on St. Patrick's Day, she proceeds to uh, talk about why this investigation was flawed. And one of the chief things she says, it was uh, uh, there was racial targeting by the prosecutors, uh, and that, in other words, the people who were taking the cash did happen to be African American legislators um and but she's saying they deliberately went after them um, uh, and that there was evidence of this well it's it's still being contested by one of the people, but to make a long story short, she doesn't want to still want to prosecute; she just wants to keep explaining why she didn't do it uh, there's a public battle between her and the district attorney of Philadelphia, Seth Williams. Who says? Look, I'll take it. She finally sends the cases to him. He prosecutes them, and five of uh, uh, four out of the five uh, uh, legislators involved in taking the cash uh, uh, eventually plead guilty, but to conflict of interest, not to bribery. Um, but they get the pleas, and at least they they, they get something. Uh, this ethics charge that she didn't even, you know, decide to prosecute in the first place. So it was very troubling, you know, why this took place and why she didn't do it. Um, uh, and we can only speculate why, but it's not a matter of record, you know, mm-hmm. why she didn't do it.
0: Inquirer had to get that information mostly from a le- leak. I mean, they had they had to talk to people to get the kind of information that they they did. Uh, Kathleen Kane suspected Frank Fina. Frank Fina had been a prosecutor in the Attorney general's office under tom corbett uh had a good reputation as being a, a tough prosecutor had prosecuted some very high profile cases Jerry sandusky mike Vion, uh yeah, bonusgate computer bonus gate, gate computer gate all all the scandals that you list over the last uh few years but Kane looked at Frank Fina as the source of this story. And that's where her problems began, not just the story, but that she wanted revenge on Frank Fina.
1: Well, that's true, although I would argue that, she, that Fina was on her radar earlier than that, and that is uh, shortly after she was sworn into office, Frank Fina, upon he had already decided he was out of there. He didn't want to work for Kathleen Kane, and he had a meeting with Kane and her senior aides where he described some of the cases that were, were pending, and it, it was called the Dirty Dozen uh, after that, but he reported to her, here are all these cases that are out there, and um, um, it was a very tense exchange between the two of them, and it was clear that, you know, she didn't uh, like him. She didn't like the way he operated, Um, and he was a very, very good prosecutor. There are a lot of people who cannot stand Frank Fina, especially in this town, Um, but he got results,
0: We'll, talk, we'll go more into the case here in just a moment, but we have a caller who maybe has uh, the ultimate question. Faith is in Lancaster. Faith, you're on the air.
2: Yes, good morning. Good morning. Two questions. First of all, does the author know how we compare in terms of corruption with other states, any idea? And secondly, uh, the ultimate question is why is it? Could it be the bloated legislature mm. that we have?
0: Good questions. Thank you very much, Faith. Uh, that's probably you know the two most important questions. But I, I saw something recently, Brad, that compared us with other states, and Illinois was ranked as uh, very close to us or above us. But how do we compare with other states? And then let's say uh, maybe take a shot at uh, why uh, Pennsylvania is so corrupt.
1: Yeah. It's very difficult to find the numbers to show unequivocally where Pennsylvania stands compared to other states, because the comparisons that are available are based on federal cases. Almost all of these cases that have taken place over over the past 10 years have been state Uh, Charges, So it's sort of an apples and orange thing. But just looking anecdotally at the evidence and the federal charges that have been filed, we're still up there with the federal charges. Pennsylvania, unequivocally, uh, is one of the top states uh, for corruption. There is no doubt about that. Whether we're number one is a different story, and it depends on the year, I suppose. But uh, Illinois, with uh, uh, four governors having been charged and resigned... um, uh, Blagojevich, having been the most recent, uh, it, it, in my personal opinion, is probably the most corrupt state. New York State, historically, if you just look at bribery cases in the in the in the legislature, you know, real serious bribery cases, you know, real estate deals and taking money, it's 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 up there unquestionably too. Uh, so is Louisiana. Uh, historically, and New Jersey had been for a long while, but we 're up there with those those states so there 's no question about that to say we 're number one would be a a stretch. we may be, but i I would not have the evidence to to back that up why
0: Why is Pennsylvania so corrupt?
1: Why is it corrupt? I think you know in the the book in in the chapter called the, the in the final analysis we we deal with with some of those reasons and at least as far as legislative corruption um, Two of the experts that I interview in there, um, uh, uh, Laurel Branstetter, who's prosecuted a lot of these cases and was interesting, and Mark Schwartz, who's an uh, attorney in Bryn Mawr, they they both offered up the idea that uh, um, the size of the legislature, the money that's available to legislators is one of the reasons. And um, uh, th- it was interesting that their analysis of that compared... Uh, almost identically to uh, a former FBI agent who'd been involved in the Abscam case and the California Shrimpgate case, who now has a consulting firm. And I had interviewed him a year or so ago. And he said, look, it's the states where there's all this money available to legislators. That Money is the root of all of this. Now, some would argue that that's also campaign money. It's not just, you know, there. And, and in, in fact, we have starting to see some executive branch corruption in the state with, with uh, Rob McCord, the state treasurer, and then former state treasurer uh, Barbara Hafer. And money was, was the root of some of that. In, in, in McCord's case, running for governor, sees, sees Tom Wolf spending $10 million, can't compete, even though he was fairly wealthy and starts uh shaking down state contractors for money so you know money does appear to be the root of it uh the, the size and the, the expense of our legislature could be part of it mm-hmm. there may be other reasons but it really starts to get uh somewhat what um, um ethereal i guess you would say in that there are political scientists who have looked at this And they believe that that states that have a history, a long history of ward politics, like we had in Philadelphia and we have in Pittsburgh, uh, that that kind of uh, ward politics and the the company town atmosphere up in Scranton and Lackawanna County and Luzerne County, that that kind of thing makes people somewhat dependent on politicians, you know, for jobs, for other things, and they're more cynical and, and, and more inclined to perhaps accept corruption. That's not a proven theory, but it's, it's one that political scientists talk about. And in Pennsylvania's case, I mean, that would fit with Pennsylvania, Illinois, and New York, mm-hmm. for instance. And uh, Louisiana, I don't know enough about their, their parishes to, to say.
0: You know, we do have a long history. In fact, uh, there's a new book out on Simon Cameron. Uh, we go back to the 1850s, 1860s. Uh, who was, you know, on Lincoln's cabinet? He uh, but... was so
1: corrupt that Lincoln wanted him out. That's right.
0: That's right. But I'm going to be interviewing the author of that book in a few few weeks. All right. So let's get back to um, let's go back to Frank Fina and Kathleen Kane. Um, and I mentioned Jerry Sandusky. The Jerry Sandusky case. Frank Fina uh, was the prosecutor in that case.
1: He and Joe McGettigan.
0: Right. But uh, Fina, one of, one of the lead prosecutors in the right. case. Um, Kathleen Kane ran as an unknown. When she ran for attorney general, when her campaign seemed to pick up some momentum was when she started talking about the Sandusky case and started questioning why the investigation took so long. That's correct. Obviously... Fina couldn't have been happy about that. I mean, this, no. the guy went to jail for what probably is going to be the rest of his life. I'm talking about Sandusky. So, during the course of that investigation, when Kane becomes Attorney General, she tries to uh, fulfill the promise and does investigation of the investigation of what took so long. Ultimately, it comes out that it was, you know, there were no political reasons for this case taking so long. Uh, General Corbett who became governor, uh, used a grand jury, didn't want to use just one or two of the victims because he wanted a solid case. Okay, so that all comes out. But in the course of this investigation, there are emails discovered. This is what turns into PornGate. Describe what happened. And you were very involved from the very beginning of seeing some of these things.
1: Well, yes. And... um, uh, A couple of reporters, just uh, I'd say two or three, had heard some rumors about this and started filing right-to-know requests in the summer of 2014. Um, You know, we heard that there was pornography, offensive emails that crossed uh, attorney general's servers. So we asked for, you know, uh, in in my case, I, I made a request for the names of all officials who had sent or received these things. And uh, one day, you know, as, as it's progressing, we, we heard they're getting this together, got a call from Renee Martin, uh, who's functioning as uh, one of the nine press secretaries. Right. nine like, of them, yeah. Uh, Kathleen Kane at that time. And uh, she says, uh, you know, we're going to have this stuff ready for you to pick up for your uh, right to know all requests. Uh, come on over here at one o'clock or whatever it was. So we go over to the attorney general's office, we being Angela Columbus of the Enquirer and Steve Essick. And um, um, there might have been someone else, but we go over there. And we're given these boxes, each of us, these big boxes with, with you know, people's names in it. And I flipped through them real quick. And they're all people who had worked for Republican Tom Corbett. And I said, why are we getting these names? I mean, why these people? I asked for everybody who sent these. Is this everybody? Uh, this is a combined um, uh, right to know all request. We merged all your requests together to, to do this. We well, can't do that. I mean, a request is dealt with individually. You turn mine down if you can't give them all, you know. So they wanted it. They wanted to get this information out to embarrass certain people, and of course, uh, Frank Fina was. Uh, among those people. and uh, But they were all people who had worked for Corbett. Corbett was still in office. Uh, it, it caused a, uh, the, the resignation of, of, of at least two people who were uh, Corbett administration officials. There were people in the private sector uh, who, who were affected by this or lost their jobs or had to leave their positions. So it was very devastating when this first came out. But it was the very first instance of how we would see Kathleen Kane used this this, uh, pornography that was found to go after her political enemies.
0: And that became one of her defenses, is that uh, the reason that she was being pursued, persecuted, prosecuted, was that there were powerful people who didn't want those emails coming out publicly. And it was this good old boys network that she referred to that was coming after her
1: yes and and that was her it, as it turned out, it was mainly just her public relations defense because the the judge who heard her criminal trial ruled that it could not be part of her legal defense there
0: was no It was basically no legal relationship,
1: no none whatsoever I mean, no matter how much porn was sent or or, or you know who sent or received it, what did that have to do with her perjuring herself or not before a grand jury? You either lie or you don 't and and Judge Wendy Demchik-Aloy um, uh, ruled that you can't use that as a defense, nor could she use selective prosecution. And I think Kane all along had believed that if she could get before a jury in Montgomery County and argue those things, that she might be able to pick up enough jurors to prevent any kind of conviction, people who might be sympathetic to the idea of an old boys network, which there certainly is. I mean. Uh, uh, Judge Barry Feudale, who had also feuded with Kane, uh, you know, says, of, of, "Of course there is, you know, but that doesn't mean that that they set her up either."
0: And you know, and one of the things that you write in the book is that uh, some of the people who were prosecuted under Bonusgate, where uh, campaign money on on state time there were people campaigning, yes. uh, same same Computergate, using computers for for campaigns, uh, came out and said that, uh, hey. How's this any different than than what we did? They were using state computers, on state time, uh, to send pornography uh, to 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 one another, uh, even though it may not have been against the law to send those those emails, uh, as long as it wasn't there wasn't child pornography involved. But they still were on state time, and you said that you know a lot of them are restrictive for what they can say, but that's what they felt.
1: Yes, and. If you think about it, it was um, state time, uh, state computers, uh, pornography. It was wrong. It was boneheaded. Anybody who did it and thought that it would never come out, which is what they believed, because this was uh, email sent within the attorney general's office, which was not, you know, these are investigators. They're not subject to right to know law. They didn't think ever that it would come out, but I- is it a crime? Well, you know. Uh, it's. For someone else to determine, but you know clearly, uh, you know the, the u- use of pornography by the Supreme Court is—it's not a crime necessarily to transmit it on a state computer. Some would say, you know, one push a button on an email is is de minimis activity. It's not like you used uh, uh, millions of dollars in ComputerGate for political purposes. Uh, This is, uh, okay, you're distracted for a moment. You look at this, you send it. And to call it all pornography is really a stretch. There were a lot of things that were were, uh, nasty. There was some that would probably qualify as pornography. You walked out in the street here and showed them... Uh, to various people. But by and large, we were talking about off-color jokes and uh, offensive emails. The, the words were offensive. And that particularly became part of what affected uh, uh, former Justice uh, Aiken.
0: All right. So let's get back to uh, Kathleen Kane and Frank Fina. Uh, and this is where we get into what leads to the criminal case. Uh, she wanted to get back and the way that the story goes she wanted to get back at Frank Fina so
1: she leaks a story to it's not just how the story goes this was evidence presented at her trial by Josh Mar right 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 okay but she
0: it's secret grand jury information yes. all right it is illegal for that to get out to the public it is Philadelphia Daily News got a leak yes okay so what happens from there
1: philadelphia daily news um, uh and and specifically a, a very very good reporter chris brennan uh who now works for the inquirer ironically um takes this and does what a reporter should do with it he doesn't just take it and and run the story and we'll tell you in a moment what was in this material but he checks it out and he starts calling different people everybody who's named in there sees if he can get somebody talking about it what it was that was leaked by uh ultimately by Kathleen Kane, but, but indirectly through uh, 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 She gives this envelope of material to her chief, then chief first deputy, uh, Adrian King, who says he doesn't look at what's inside of it. He didn't know what's inside of it, and um, he takes it to her political consultant No, he, he leaves it in his doorway, and her political consultant, Joshua Morrow, picks it up. And then Morrow and Kane go back and forth in a whole series of text messages about how they're going to do this uh, and leak it to the, the daily news. And what this is, this information is from a 2009 investigation of a man named Jay Wyatt Mondesire, who was a uh, former president of the Philadelphia NAACP and was a newspaper publisher, a, a, a weekly newspaper. And uh, Mr. Mondesire was targeted in this financial investigation. It's believed that Cain that wanted to show that, look, here, Frank Fina, uh, who had this case of uh, Mondesire, didn't prosecute a prominent black, just like he, under the table, was at least accusing me of doing in the Sting case. Um, and, and so this goes out, and the Daily News publishes the story. Well, you're J. Wyatt Mondesire. What does that do to you? It smears him is what it does because he was never charged. He was never arrested. You can be under investigation of 10 grand juries in the past, but if you're not charged, you know, they never got to a conclusion that there was enough evidence to move forward with it. So Montezaire is crushed by this. His fiance comes in and testified because he died in 2015. And she testifies at Kane's trial that he was never the same again after this came out. And in a, in a brilliant move, I believe, Kevin Steele, the Montgomery County District Attorney, in his opening uh, arguments starts with the Jerry Mondesire case. That was a charge of official oppression against Kathleen Kane. Now one would think you might start with the most serious charges, which are perjury. Those are felonies. And usually when we write about it, that's how we do it. And then, you know, you go back to what the lesser charges are. But he starts with official oppression because there was a victim, and that's what's missing in perjury. I mean, the court system is a victim, uh, the legal system is a victim, but it's a faceless crime. Here, this was a man who was badly hurt, and she apparently, according to the evidence, didn't care what it did to Jerry Montessor. And if there's anything that I think had an effect on that jury, it was that. I, I mean, just even sitting there listening to it, it was, yeah, this guy you know this is not right i mean it's not supposed to happen that way in the united states
0: so she's called to testify before a grand jury which is ironic because she's testifying before a grand jury about a grand jury uh, but uh, anyway she's called to testify it seems as though she's trying to delay it or there were delays oh well, and
1: then she did delay it twice and yeah. only appeared on the third occasion the second time she had an accident uh in in northeastern pennsylvania at 10 to 7 in the morning she was to report to uh, uh, philadelphia uh, uh to, excuse me norristown for the grand jury and the car was driven by a former police officer from the city that the accident occurred in
0: mm. and well how far away you know how, Two hours so and how, when was it supposed to start
1: well, I don't know what time the grand jury started. Probably most court things start at nine. Uh-huh. So it, it almost has the appearance that uh,
0: she wasn't going to make it there anyway. But she was involved in an accident and said she had a concussion. Yes. Had a she didn't you know didn't uh, divulge that for like ten days afterwards. That's exactly right. I mean, you talked to her press secretary. You were like
1: incredulous
0: that uh, you know. Ten days,
1: right? Why didn't we know this? Yeah, Renee calls. Me, Renee Martin calls me that morning and said the the uh, general was in an accident. I said, "Oh no, I'm sorry to hear that." How, how is she? Well, she's doing better, but she 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 w- was injured. And I said, "Well, when did this happen?" She gave me the date, and I looked at the calendar. It's ten days ago. Why are you telling me now? I mean, it's incredible. Uh, you know, a governor, an attorney general, is is involved in something serious that that that, that they're hurt. You, can, you tell the press right away. It's 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 news.
0: Yeah. So she was accused of perjuring herself, lying before that grand jury multiple ab- times about yes. the leak. Right. Right. Okay. So that's what the criminal charges she was brought up on. So. Last week is the trial. I mean, we're, we're skipping a lot here, yeah, yeah. and you have to read about it in the book uh, because there is a lot in between and a lot of information that uh, you know. I was joking with Brad that uh, if he wrote this as a movie script, there probably would be people who wouldn't who would say, "Ah, oh, that's that's fiction. You can't believe that." But it is not. This is what actually happened. So the trial last week. I have to say that one of the things that struck me was that there was so much. The prosecution put up th- three days of testimony, and then the defense didn't call Kane, which is her right; she doesn't have to testify against herself. But they didn't call any other witnesses as well. So, your uh, we had you on earlier in the week, but your impression of the trial?
1: Well, the the Commonwealth presented overwhelming evidence against Kathleen Kane. There there was no doubt about it, and. While you might have wavered a little bit or thought, well, I don't know about this, when Josh Morrow came in and testified, her confidant, her political guy... And you, you looked at all the emails, the, 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 those text messages they they exchanged with, with each other. There was no doubt that she conspired in this. And the, the, what it is is uh, Josh Morrow was a co-conspirator, and her attorneys did, in their closing, at least try to attack his his credibility. But as uh, Bruce Hankoviac, a a law professor, told me, a former federal prosecutor, when you have a a co-conspirator testify and you have independent evidence to verify what that co-conspirator says, it carries far more weight. And in this case, they not only had the text messages between Kane and Josh Morrow, out of the blue comes a a transcript from a federal wiretap uh, in the Rob McCord case uh, of um, uh, Joshua Morrow, the consultant, talking to his buddy who worked for Um, mccord not knowing that it was being recorded by the fbi so even if you thought that there was some state or montgomery county conspiracy against kathleen kane the fbi is involved in this too i don't think so and this was another devastating piece of evidence against her
0: what was the because you talked to a lot of people generally what did you hear about the decision not to call any witnesses
1: well, I, you know, I've seen a lot of trials, and, and I've certainly seen that before. It's not
0: right. It's not unprecedented. Yeah.
1: And and you know, it can get you out of uh, uh, more trouble by not presenting something because you start to present witnesses, and they're cross-examined, and when you have a pretty strong case to start with, that can hurt. Also, I believe that um, when you know you're not going to put the defendant on the stand, and they were not going to put Kathleen Kane on the stand, they couldn't. Uh, because the prosecution would have decimated her with with the information they had. If you don't put on any defense, it's less apparent that you're It sort of obfuscates the fact that the defendant's not testifying because you're not presenting a defense, as opposed to you present a whole bunch of witnesses and she doesn't testify, whereas Kathleen Kane. but a lot of people were, were shocked by that, that, that uh, even some attorneys I know disagree with that strategy. Defense attorney told me that you at least could have done 10 or 12 character witnesses mm-hmm. to talk about what a good mom and what a good person she is. And she goes to mass or whatever.
0: Mm. Brad Bumstead is uh, the a columnist for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. His new book is Keystone Corruption Continues, Cash Payoffs, Porngate, and the Kathleen Kane Scandal. And uh, Brad enjoyed the book, and I'm sure that uh, those out there who uh, can get it on
1: Amazon, right? Sure, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. uh, You can also get it from my publisher, Sunbury Press.
0: Brad, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much. You're listening to Smart
0: Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. One of the region's largest art shows is this weekend. The Mount Gretna Art Show is scheduled for tomorrow and Sunday in Mount Gretna in Lebanon County. Linda Bell is the chairperson of the Mount uh, Mount Gretna Art Show Committee. Ms. Bell, welcome to the program.
2: Well, Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: We have a few minutes to talk about the art show. What makes the Mount Gretna Art Show so special?
2: I think it's our trees has nothing to do with the art, but it's the the atmosphere. We have an art show that's in a park with lots of lovely trees and Victorian cottages surrounding it, and that makes it special.
0: You know, I was in Mount Gretna just last Sunday, and... um You know, I live just a few miles away, and it was 95 degrees when I left home, got to Mount Gretna, and in my car it was 85 degrees. So those trees that you talk about that does make it so lovely and uh, such a, a uh, a great location, now that you mention it, That probably does have a lot to do with all your visitors and the the atmosphere there at the art show.
2: Oh, yes. The shade makes a big difference.
0: What about the art itself? Who are the artists who participate, and why is this uh, something that people travel from across the country to see?
2: Well, we have 260 artists. There's a whole array of different kinds of art. Some of those artists are people that we have seen every year. Some of them are new But I think it's safe to say we probably have an artist from every state in the Union and even one or two from Canada this year.
0: What kind of art?
2: We have oil paintings and watercolors, the things that people normally think of as art, but we also have the fine crafts, pottery, furniture, of course jewelry, um, even musical instruments. You name it, it's here so
0: what okay you know, you talked about the trees and um you know the shade the atmosphere but as far as art shows go arts and craft shows what makes you know there's a difference i have to say that there are different levels of of shows and mount Gretna certainly is you know one of the most reputable has a great reputation across the country what makes it that way
2: Well, number one, it would be the fact that we are a juried show. Of course, we're not the only juried show, but that means a panel of professionals makes a selection from all the applications, and then we send out invitations to those who have been selected to exhibit. So we hopefully are getting the cream of the crop.
0: Hmm. And I think, you know, from having been there many times, I would agree with that. Um, as far as the history goes, how long, what uh, what art show, what Mount Gretton Art show is this, by the way?
2: This will be our 42nd show.
0: All right. Talk a little bit about the history. How did it get started and how did it grow to the point where it is now?
2: Well, I, of course, wasn't involved in the very first years. But you I weren't? Understand. Well, <laughs> well that's I'm good old to enough, hear. But I was not involved. <laughs> <laughs> The first, In the very first year some local artists, because we have many resident artists in Mount Gretna, decided to show their work, sell their work. They did that. They had probably a very good response to it, and it just kept growing. Every year expanded, and next thing, there's artists that don't live in Mount Gretna, that don't even live in Lebanon County. They for, are even from without of the state. So it just evolved.
0: Mm. and over 42 years you can see how that would happen but word of mouth had to to spread there you know when you're saying that you have audience or excuse me you have artists from across the country and even from from Canada as well now let's talk about some of the logistics uh, Mount Grutn is a small town um, you know you have a two lane road going into town uh, one two lane road for the most part a, a lake uh, and a lot of trees as you mentioned parking is always an issue what would you advise people as far as parking goes?
2: Well, we use a field across the intersection from our show, um, which we have always used for parking. We also have a field adjacent to the Philhaven Hospital and provide shuttle bus service to the show entrance. And in fact, that's probably the most convenient. It's right off of 322. You go into the, the area there, park, jump on the shuttle bus, and you're dropped right off at the gate.
0: We only have about fifteen seconds left, and uh, Linda Bell. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Um, as far as entry fee, uh, hours, and all that,
2: the show is on from nine to six tomorrow, Saturday. Nine to five on Sunday. The admission is twelve dollars for anyone over the age of twelve years. And we have plenty of entertainment besides the art. We have musical entertainment, things for the kids, uh, balloon makers performance it's a whole day of festival for the whole family.
0: Linda Bell is chairperson of the Mount Gretna Art Show Committee. Linda thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Mm -hmm.
0: Coming up on Monday another book former lieutenant governor and acting governor Mark Single joins us.